On episode 19 of the Game Developers Podcast, Out of Play Area, we start our month of QA appreciation and sit down with Brian Dumlau, a QA analyst for Jam City in Carlsbad, California. We talk about starting at EB Games, then making the leap into the industry at Midway Games in San Diego, where he worked on MK, Deadly Alliance, Unreal Tourney. Then he went on to work for Disney. Then he jumped over to High Moon Studios, helping out on Destiny to where he is today at Jam City. We dive deep on one of the key roles in this industry, and he shares candidly his mentality that has allowed him to thrive doing what he loves and drops essential knowledge on the skills needed to be effective in this role and much, much more. With over 20 years doing the damn thing, please welcome repping LA from Filipino roots, Brian Dumlao. Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue. Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. Jeff Junio, when I was reaching out to be like, hey, there's this conversation happening about QA in the game dev space, and I'm always going to be pro QA. We can't do what we do without people that love what they do in that department and discipline. Put me in touch with people that have shipped the game, been in this industry for a while, and got stories to share. So he put me in contact with you, Brian. That's how this episode came to be. So I want to know where you know Jeff. I know him through Jam City. He was just part of the design department. I'm part of QA. The thing about the industry in general is that you always network, right? You always know people through people through people. So one of the guys that I know in the QA department is Steve Scott. And I worked with him back in Midway. Like we're talking back in 02. And Steve's been in, in Jam City for quite a while. In fact, when I got in, he was basically my lead for QA. Okay. And since Jeff and Steve and a bunch of other people kind of play ball uh, around every Wednesday or so, I'm guessing that's how they kind of got, they got close and it was, oh, I got a guy coming in, you know, you're going to like him and so forth and so forth. That's probably it. Anytime people play basketball in that beautiful SoCal sun makes me smile. What are we drinking today, man? This is actually kind of special because I haven't drank one of these And I can't even count how long, man. Oh, man. All right. So stereotypical gamer drink, right? Yeah. But you currently have in your hand a bottle of Diet Mountain Dew. Looks like that's going to be a liter version. You got it. You called it. (laughs) I got me a 64-ounce cup of Mountain Dew Voltage, which is the blue raspberry flavor. This is actually nostalgic, right? Like When I think of Mountain Dew, I think of this more lemony, kiwi kick kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it Mm -hmm. needs to be like the classic, classic flavor, right? Because honestly, they didn't start really branching out, I think... If memory serves me right, it wasn't until, I think, Halo 3. That would have been, what, 2007? Something like that, yeah. Mm. And it was Code Red. Mm-hmm. So it was their cherry flavor, right? I got to say, I don't know what you felt about it, but I bought into the marketing. I was a big Halo player. You know, Halo 3, day one, I think I beat it with my cousin Carlos and, and other friends the same night. I went to work late the next day at Midway. <laughs> and that Code Red and my taste buds just did not mix, man. It did not oh. mix. Uh-uh. Oh, man. Uh-uh. I, I had Code Red separate of Halo, right? 
-hmm. it was more like, okay, I like Mountain Dew. Hey, new flavor. Let's give it a shot. Mm -hmm. Right. But as far as Halo goes, I was doing offsite work for Unreal Tournament 3. So they sent me over to North Carolina at Epic, right? You're at headquarters. Oh, yeah. And so we're there and, you know, midnight launch comes out. Now, this is around, I want to say it was like October, November-ish, right? Yep. Yep. The holiday season. Yep. I know this because Black Sire 51 came out November 11th or so. Same day as like Assassin's Creed 1 and like Modern Warfare, I think was the next day. But Halo 3 kind of led the season off, right? Mm -hmm. Halo 3 was late September, I want to say. Yep. So we were all playing the shit out of this as we were kind of like wrapping up on Black Sight and being like, oh, we need this and we need that. We need to change our melee and all this shit. So you're able to do that. I'm out here in North Carolina, like by myself, because they gave us like two separate apartments, right? And so me and a friend go out midnight to the Best Buy there. We go out and we pick up the helmets. Oh, Legendary Edition. Yes. Yeah. So we pick that up. I'm not playing multiplayer with anyone right now. Like, it, it's more like, okay, well, I, I got this. Oh, no one else has it yet. Because, you know, East Coast time versus West Coast time. West Coast didn't have it. Oh. So I'm like, all right, well, uh, let me play the campaign. So, you know, and I'm still working off-site overtime. So got through the campaign in a couple of days, right? Yeah. Didn't get to play any multiplayer until I got back to San Diego. So that was like a couple of months later. Damn. Then I started playing multiplayer with my cousins. And then we decided, because everyone had bought into Halo Fever. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so we decided, all right, my sister and I are going to do co-op, right? So we go through the campaign in co-op. I had already beat the game in single player. My cousin gets an Xbox, and she's like, let's go play four-player co-op. Let's do the campaign. We're like, okay. That was a big thing. Oh, yeah. So we did it. System-linked, two TVs, split-screen on each one, right? Four-player, legendary co-op, murdered it. Yo, kudos and props, bro, because their legendary AI accuracy damage is oh god, the roof. it was nightmarish. Like you needed four players on that. Uh, one. Yep, yeah, because you can you can do the whole rubber banding and like respawn people, but mm-hmm. anything less than maybe three players, anything less than three players, you, you had, had to be, be committed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to be on point, and we were not. <laughs> yeah, because you you would poke your head out on a sniper, and it would be like you were done, right? Mm-hmm. Like two, yeah. Man, you're taking me back, Brian. You're taking me back to some good times, bro. Mountain Dew Code Red, not so good. Halo 3, Bungie, last one, I think, as as part of their Microsoft deal. No, no, no. They still had ODST and Reach. But, like, some would say the peak. I particularly love Reach myself, but mm-hmm. I remember Reach being not so... Okay, Reach was not John and Master Chief. It was more right. other people. So, so 3 was the big Master Chief, like, last piece of Master Chief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why for me, like, I, I don't care what anyone says, like, the next Halo could be the most amazing thing in the world. I still have a fond memory for three, mm-hmm. three and one, but one oh, is yeah. for completely different reasons. Sure. One actually introduced me to the QA squad in Midway. Before we get into that, let the people know where are you at currently? What is your role? What do you do? I am currently at Jam City. We are a mobile game company. Our most popular game is Cookie Jam. It's a match three game, kind of like Bejeweled or Candy Crush, right? Yep. That game's been around for, my God, we're almost six years now? Maybe seven, as far as I know? Uh, yeah, seven sounds about right. I caught when the Cookie Jam, like in 2014. Yeah, because it was a Facebook game originally. Mm-hmm. Um, so my role there is, as of this recording, a senior QA analyst, partially working on Cookie Jam and partially working on a game we have not announced. Oh, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. 
that's exciting. So like carrying the ship, right? Carrying the flag for the current moneymaker, but then getting to get hands on something fresh and new. Oh yeah. But definitely something fresh and new that the particular studio that I'm working at in Carlsbad, we're the ones responsible for Cookie Jam. And this new project that we haven't announced is definitely very different. So it should be very fun to kind of break out of the mold and do something way different. So definitely yeah. looking forward to that one. How would you describe your role to someone who is not in games? And okay. the, way I, the way I like to frame this, if I picture this was like 1980 or something like this, how would you okay. describe what you do? The common misconception people have about QA in the video game industry is you sit down and you play games all day. This is partially true. You are sitting down. You are playing games. But your mission is not to constantly beat the game or get good at the game. Your mission is to break the game in every which way possible, within reason. You know, Obviously, you're not sitting there trying to hack the game and inject code or anything, but more uh-huh. of if you're playing, let's say, Black Sight, if you're playing Cookie Jam, within the rules already set in the game, you are trying to find a way to break it, whether that means crashing the game, completely making it shut down. That's the most extreme example. Mm-hmm. Minor examples would be stuff like, oh, this gun is going through a wall. It doesn't hurt anybody, but it looks pretty bad that a gun is going through a brick wall. Yeah. Other cases would be, I'm running through this trigger point and nothing is happening, even though I know there should be an ambush. Or I'm making a match of five cookies, and it should be getting me this particular power-up, and it's getting me something way different instead. Yep. So those are the things you'd be looking for. From there you are responsible for reporting it to production, to the developers, to anybody who is in charge of a particular section. Try to explain it to the best of your ability. The common phrase that was always taught to me was, explain it like your grandmother is programming the game. She knows how to program this thing. She has never played the game in her life. Mm -hmm. You should be able to describe it in a way that after reading it, she knows exactly what to do to recreate this bug so that she can go fix it. And from there, it is a constant back and forth. You report your bugs, production takes it, they hopefully fix it, they give you a new version of the game, hopefully with these fixes in, you go back, you go regress your bug list, all the stuff you previously found, and they said, oh, these five are fixed, great, let's go see if they're fixed. They're fixed. Yay. Give them the good word. Oh, no, they're not fixed. All right. Write up the report. Tell them, all right, this isn't fixed. We're still seeing this, or this is a new way to get it. And you do that over and over and over again until you get to the point where everyone feels the game is in a good enough state to finally ship out to the public. Mm -hmm. That's a great overview of (laughs) the importance and vitality and offerings of the wonderful people on the quality assurance team on a project, for sure. So you mentioned a few things there, right? You mentioned bug reporting. You mentioned playing the game. You mentioned tracking these things. A lot of communications involved there. What are your go-to tools in your day-to-day? For the day-to-day at Cookie Jam, we use a database program called Jira, and that's really just to list down the bugs, and so all the bugs get traffic to the correct people, right? For our own checklists, we are using Google Sheets, or in some places, it'd be Microsoft Excel. It really yeah, is. Yeah, spreadsheet. Exactly. You just need something basic so that you have your list of tasks for this particular feature or this particular new event that's happening. Yep. There is that because we use certain calls that are done every time a move is made. And because it's a constantly online game, we use a program called Charles, 
which intercepts network traffic. And you're able to not really modify anything with it, but you're able to analyze certain things that get sent. Mm. This information then gets sent over to the production team or the product manager so that they know, all right, well, now we know because of this hook, the player touched this part to get this to happen. Nice. So you kind of get all the actions you need to be able to reproduce something. Oh, yeah. That's wonderful, man. Outside of that, the only other tools we end up using a lot right now happen to be the onboard tools on the phone or tablets. In particular, screen recording, because there are times where you can explain a bug well, but the developer still needs to know, all right, I need to see exactly what's going on. Yeah, man. And before, I used to be able to just take my iPad, walk over there and say, hey, all right, here it is. Mm -hmm. I'm going to show it to you live. But, you know... In these uncertain times, we the best thing for me to do is to turn on the screen recording software so that they can get a video of it. And because every device has this, screenshots. Because at times you don't yeah. need a video, you just need a screenshot of what it is. Yeah. So we use those quite often since a lot of our testing is done on iOS and Android and in some cases, Amazon devices. When we're doing Facebook testing, it's somewhat the same thing. We're very freeform in terms of getting screenshot software and video recording software. So like in my example, I've got a Windows PC. If I'm testing the game on Facebook, of all things, I'm using the Xbox Game Bar because it works really great in a pinch in terms of recording video. That's funny, man. You could use other products to screen cap as opposed to anything native or a third-party thing. Right. I mean, if anything, the mantra with a lot of QA is, what can you do to get this to happen? Do it. Go get that tool. You know, just make sure it doesn't cost arms and legs. Go get it. Go get it done. Do whatever it takes. Ask for forgiveness later kind of thing. Pretty much. As long as you know that the tool is safe enough, it's not projecting out company secrets, you should Mm -hmm. be okay. With that, I'd love to go back to how you got into the industry. Where did it all begin? Okay. So going back to, let's call it around early 2002, right? Okay. So I'm out of college. I'm working at a GameStop Sorry, it was EB Games at the time. EB Games. Yeah, where was the location? Okay, so I'm originally from Los Angeles. Mm. So I worked in between Santa Monica and Westwood. I guess you'd still call That's West LA. Okay, yep. Sounds about right. So I'm working in that area. You know, I'm, I'm doing retail, and, and I'm liking it, but I know that, all right, look, I'm graduated. I need to do something. What'd you study? I originally studied biology. Oh, damn. Did not gel with me very well. But you finished it. Long story short, it went from biology to sociology. Okay, so still still the sciences, but yeah, like it, one political science. Exactly. It was more like, all right, I'm, I need to get a degree at least. And <laughs> get out of here. And it's one of those things where I, I don't know exactly what I would apply to this. I like games. Let's see if I can break into the industry. I feel like that degree is super valuable, especially in like live mobile games that are all about keeping you engaged and keeping you hooked in and coming mm-hmm. back for more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm out there, and I'm at home, and I'm going, you know what, where can I break in? So, you know, I've been doing research online, and apparently a good way to get your foot in the door if you never really had experience in programming or anything else was QA. Like, okay, mm-hmm. so living in L.A., shotgun the resume. I just start throwing out the resume to every place in L.A. So many studios there. Oh, yeah, Activision, EA, you know, a lot of the big guns that were in the area. And I kind of wish I knew that Square was in the area because I had a friend working there, but that, that's a different story. So I shotgunned that, you know, waited like a week or two. And I'm like, you know what? I need to spread this out. Let's go south. 
How did you know about the companies? Did you have a database or any web thing? Or it was just like, hey, I see the building right there. I know that they're here or got friends. When I was young, I was super obsessed with the movies. I live in LA. I mean, movie studios, Hollywood. Movie, right? And so it was one of those things where I didn't pay attention so much to the actors in a movie so much as I paid attention to, okay, who's which studio is distributing this? Yeah. You know, who's the producer? Who's the director on this one? You know, that the type creative of creative team. Right? Yeah, exactly. And so when I really, really, really got into games and started paying attention to that type of thing, you know, which you, you, you do as a kid back in the eight and 16 bit era, because you're, you're going to go like, all right, well, I know this company's going to produce good stuff. I know this company's kind of like, I'd go to Blockbuster and rent this, right? So I paid attention really to like the 32 bit and 64 bit era. Like, okay, where are these people at? Right? So you start looking at the back of the box. It's like, okay, well, hey, Activision is saying that their main address is here. Okay, these are still kind of the early days of the internet, so people are putting up their site as advertisements, right? Like, mm-hmm. hey, we're Activision, we are located here, we do this type of thing, right? So that's all I really did was I just started looking up every game publisher I could, and like, okay, you're here, all right, it's close enough to home, cool, let's send the resume out. All right, you're close enough here, let's send the resume out. Eventually, I decided, all right, I need to cast my net wider, but instead of going north to San Francisco like a lot of people would, I went south to San Diego. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, you had Sony and you had Midway. Midway was the first to respond. This was at the time where they were directly hiring QA at Midway before a lot of other people decided we're going to go with like temp agencies, right? Mm-hmm. So they said, hey, you want to come in for an interview? I'm like, okay, cool. And I realized, wait, it's in San Diego. I'm here. Two hour drive. That's great. Let's go. <laughs> so I did it, right? I went in, walked in, did the interview, got through the interview process, which was a ton of fun. Tell me more. Tell me more about the process. The process was typical of what you hear in a job. Like, okay, you know, what's your experience? You know, how would you handle this type of situation? Have you been working with a lot of people? You know, what's your, what's your previous knowledge about games and so forth? Which typical questions you'd ask in an interview, right? Like every place will ask you this. Do you feel like working at EB Games gives you a unique perspective into games and games that people are playing and the type of feedback you're hearing about what games people are enjoying, which games they aren't? That, and it got me exposure to just realizing how many games are released and the different types of games that are out there, Mm. right? I would say, especially back in the day, you kind of knew what games you wanted. And unless you were really voracious into gaming magazines and so forth, you kind of know your genres. You know exactly which publisher you're sticking with. You, If it's new, you're not really trying to feel that one. Because remember, back in the day, I wasn't into RPGs. If I was into RPGs, that would be the one game for the year because that was 75 bucks. That was yeah. 80 bucks, right? Yeah. And even when you rent stuff, like, oh, I'm going to rent this RPG. You rent it for a weekend. You're like, I don't have time to finish this, man. I don't know if we can go back to this, but I I got exposure to a lot of different games. And since this was the PlayStation era, that was a lot of different games. I mean, we're talking, hey, I can finally see what this edutainment software is. There's this game about piloting a Tonka truck. Okay, cool. The PSX library, a lot of people underestimate it, man. But that PlayStation 1 library is insane. Like the amount of games that will, will exist on that console. It is. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're finally seeing that happen now where it's just a wide variety. But back then, oh, man, if you wanted to branch out, you got a PlayStation because it had to have something for you. Yeah. Whether you knew it or not. That was there. And the fact that, again, I mentioned edutainment software. When I was working at EB, there were a lot of parents coming in. They're like, hey, uh, do you have the latest Pajama Sam? Do you have the latest Freddy Fish? I would never pay attention to that stuff, but because of that, 
like I started to go like, okay, so the PC has a lot of education software for this. That's pretty cool because all the education software was basically point and click adventure games, right? I like point and click adventure games. That might be too easy, but I don't care. That's pretty cool. I want to see that. So yeah, I got a lot of exposure to that. But one of the questions that stood out to me in the interview process was this. The guy interviewing me gave me a notepad. He gave me a pen. He goes, all right, hypothetical question. Congratulations, you have been hired at Mattel to go test Barbie dolls. List down 10 things that you would do to test a Barbie doll. And that stood out for two reasons. One, I've got a little sister. Little sisters at the time would have Barbie dolls. Yeah. And so I'm like, all right, I, can't, I know the score. I know what you can and can't do. But the other thing I loved about the question was that it was initially so far out of left field. Yeah. I'm yeah. applying for games, not toys. At Midway as well, right? Midway ain't putting exactly. out no Barbie doll adventures. Exactly. But for the guy to give me a question like that made me realize, okay, I need to think outside of the box. I need to play in a way that I don't play to make mm-hmm. this work because I might not play with Barbie dolls, but I bet you that person next to me probably has a whole collection already sets up the scenes and everything. I need to be that guy. I need to know what what's going on. And so, you know, a couple of weeks later, Hey, you're hired. Like, okay, cool. And move down to San Diego for the job. Was it like a panel of people? Was it a couple people and then several hours? How was it structured? It was definitely a lot faster and looser back in the day. So it was one guy, one hour. Nice. So you got the job. You are excited. You quit EB. What was up? How did that go down? I I told them, all right, I got to leave. And they liked me. They're like, wait, why are you leaving? Okay. I told them, all right, well, I'm taking a job in Midway. They're like, oh, cool. All right. You know, (laughs) say, you know, no hard feelings or anything, no animosity and, you know, no burying me on the way out. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. Good to go. And because I'm crazy enough not to believe in breaks, it was like I did that. And then a couple of days later, I started at Midway. <laughs> Yo, yeah, yeah. It wasn't man. like, okay, I'm going to take some time to relax. Like, no, no, I need to I need to do this. You got your way in, took your shot. You saw that this was a way to get your foot in the door. It was a great marriage between the thing you were doing in your day-to-day, working at EB, selling games, playing games, seeing what people were, were picking up, and then leveraging that and getting your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. You know, rest in peace to Midway. They also gave me my first chance. So it's super cool to bump into somebody that also got their start at Midway. So what was it like when you got in? What was the first game you were assigned to? Was there any onboarding? Like, hey, here's how you do QA. So that's the cool part. We got in and, you know, I would think, okay, well, we're just going to get thrown into a game right away. No, we essentially went to training, which is a school, right, on there. Like, all right, this is how you QA stuff. And this was for two weeks. Okay, like a two-week boot camp. Pretty much. Like, here are the things that you are looking for in terms of playing around with the system. Here are the games. You have to get used to the fact that the games are in a certain state. So you cannot go in there expecting the full game to be finished. It's going to be, oh, this is one level. Or, hey, we already know that this track is broken. Don't go there. You should go there anyway. (laughs) You know, this should work, that should work, this doesn't work, right? We get taught how to write bugs. We get taught like specific terms like clipping and sorting, that type of deal. Oh, so you get to like establish a vocabulary for when you're writing up your reports and your documentation. So we're yes. all kind of on the same page. That's smart. Many places would benefit from that, even for the development team. 
Oh, yeah. We started on that. It was a two-week stint on the Dreamcast with one of their launch games, Hydro Thunder. Yo, my wife, Catherine, loves her Dreamcast and loves playing Hydro Thunder. She was on there like a couple weeks ago playing it, man. That's funny you say that. Because that game seems <laughs> that game seems like there's a lot of exploits in there. I had picked up Hydro Thunder roughly a little bit after the Dreamcast had launched, right? Yep. And so I was familiar with Hydro Thunder. No, I wasn't. Because like <laughs> when I got there, you know, we were trained by two guys that were QA leads. They also led for Hydro Thunder, so they knew the ins and outs, right? Oh, the development of Hydro Thunder. Oh, yeah. Damn. And so, you know, we're there playing, and, you know, they'd casually walk by, and I remember, like, hey, you want to know how to do the boost? Like, what do you mean the boost? Like, you just run up the stuff. Like, no, 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 no. It was at the count. You got to do... The superstar. Yes, the break yeah. gas, break gas. And I'm like, really? Hold on. Let me try this. Yes, break it. Oh, <laughs> and suddenly I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, All right. You're I, I know what you're doing. Yeah. So it was a lot of that, a lot of testing with broken builds, broken boats, tracks that had no end, that type of deal. Or wow. this doesn't have music in there. This has placeholder sound effects, that type of deal. So it was two weeks of that, and then we were all given a final test. What the hell is a final test like? Oh, man, I got to hear more about this. We were given San Francisco Rush 2049. Well, uh, I remember that on the N64, but yes. I'm curious if it was on other consoles. Oh, yeah. PlayStation had one, but the Dreamcast had one, and the Dreamcast version was infamous in San Diego QA. So quick detour on that one. San Francisco Rush has a multiplayer mode. It's got several multiplayer modes. One's a stunt mode, but one's a battle mode. It's essentially twisted metal. Oh, damn. Like Demolition Derby, Last Man Standing. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, you are driving around deathmatch with guns, right? And you guns? You kind of had guns. Like, you had Sonic bombs and stuff like that. Wow. Forgive me. It's been a while. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> no, like no, you bring, you're bringing me back, man. So, you know, we had that. And again, it was infamous among the lab because during testing, people were known to take breaks and concentrate too much on the multiplayer because it was too fun. The story we got was that the game was banned unless you were testing it because people just kept spending too much time playing multiplayer. It was too right? addictive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Granted, we got that, and it was after the test because we had finished it, and we started playing multiplayer because we're like, hey, what's this? Oh, this is kind of cool. They're like, uh, yeah, we should tell you a story about that. Stop playing multiplayer. But anyway, so the test was this. We're given a copy of San Francisco Rush. We're given a videotape. The videotape was a recording of a bug. It was a bug to get a crash. And we weren't told how to do it. We were just told, figure it out. And so we all, all seven of us in that team worked together to try to figure out the bug. And I believe the bug was something like you had to drive backwards a certain distance, then forwards, and eventually you clip through the ground and you crash. It was something to that effect. That's something players wouldn't normally do, yeah. Wouldn't normally, but again, it's one of those it things that it, it was a 100% crash, you know. How would you classify your bugs over there? Because places I've been at, you know, we call those like A-bugs or P0. A-bugs were bugs like hard crashes, right? Yeah. Um, you know, something super fatal would happen. Depending on the situation, it could also be a progression stopper, like... Hey, I'm in level five. I beat this boss. Nothing happened. Progression stoppers, right? Some places would have that PS prefix on them, right? Progression stoppers for sure. Oh, Those yeah. are like fix these before. You know, it's usually like hard crashes first and then progression stoppers right behind there. 
Yep. And then the bee bugs, which is mostly everything else. Like I've got a person in here. They've got rainbow textures. They're not supposed to have rainbow textures. All right. That's pretty bad. Or, oh, the car went through this building. Yeah. You're fine. The building didn't blow up. You didn't blow up. But probably shouldn't go through that building. Yeah. And then like like, sea bugs are all kind of like little clipping issues, right? Like grass clipping and things like this. Yeah. Like, oh, the grass is clipping through the muzzle of my gun. Like, oh, that's not great but you know it's not going to kill us and then d's are just like man eh, don't worry about it yeah i always wondered <laughs> if there was like a standard somewhere so it's good to know it's kind of similar across oh, yeah. the industry you have so much experience of midway i want to get make sure we get through all of them but i remember you having a particular soft spot for a game i've never played i don't think i even saw until we spoke about it was gravity games bike street Dirt Furt? Am I getting that right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. So storyline-wise, I passed the test, and they're like, okay, we're going to assign you to a game. They sat me down, and I'm on the Xbox team. I'm like, cool, because I was an Xbox guy, right? Like, I had a PlayStation 2 and a Q, but I'm like, oh, I play on Xbox. Cool, I can play this Xbox game. Are you playing on, like, the Duke? Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's the, the original Xbox controller that doesn't fit small hands. The, like The big it's a huge, like, huge and, controller. And I'd like to think I've got like, decently sized hands, and that thing was perfect for me. But yeah, that thing was gargantuan. <laughs> it was awesome in that respect. Did it also take memory cards? I, I want to say oh, yeah. like, you can jack it, memory cards in there. It emulated the Dreamcast controller in that it had two slots for memory cards. Yep. So even though the Xbox had a hard drive, it was more like, hey, I'm going to a friend's house with my save. Well, I need a memory card. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so gotcha. yeah, I, I get on there and I get on a game called Gravity Games Bike Street Dirt Vert. For those that don't know, it is essentially a Tony Hawk game on a BMX bike. If you're familiar with it, think of something like Dave Mara's Pro BMX. Right? Yeah. It's a similar type of vein. You know, go around a level, do tricks, pick up things. Great. Gravity Games was based on a license started by NBC to kind of go against ESPN's X Games. And so the idea was that bike would be the first one and eventually they would start doing like gravity game skate, gravity game snowboarding, that type of deal, right? You're building a franchise off of this. Anyway, I got in there. PS2 version is on the verge of submitting. So submission would be, we're going to take this game and in their case, we're going to send it off to Sony so their QA can handle it and then we'll get approved for publishing or they'll send it back with bugs to fix. I'm on the Xbox team. Xbox had a little bit more problems with that, so they weren't submitting. So initially, my first day was get used to the game. You need to know what this game's about before you can start writing bugs. And then after that, because it was kind of in the late stages, we were doing a lot of ad hoc testing, which is just freeform testing. Like, all right, you do what you want. I'm not going to assign you to the area. Just go and find stuff. That's worth highlighting is when you have a massive game, I guess, how big is the team? And then how do you normally go about splitting all that work up? If I remember correctly, our team was probably 10 people, right? That's a good size. You had one project lead. You had one guy assigned to the TRCs, the technical requirements, particularly for the Xbox, which uh, let's divert there. So the TRCs are essentially a list of things that in Microsoft's case, these things need to work, period, because it is standard among all games. And if they don't work, we're going to fail your game. You cannot submit it to the platform. It would be stuff like hit the eject button and make sure the system resets or, you know, make sure that when you save, you don't corrupt the memory card or the hard drive or you don't accidentally 
if you have an option to delete a save, make sure you don't wipe the hard drive or make sure you're not deleting a save for Dead or Alive 3 instead of your game. You know, that type of deal, right? So these are console specific, right? It's up to the first party houses, right? The Nintendo's, the Sony's, the Microsoft, the Apple's, the Google's. And they have this checklist of things that need to work regardless, right? And, and so your game could have whatever bugs and it could still get certified and then exist on the console. Right. But this list is the make or break. Like if it doesn't do all these things, we fail it, send it back. And normally it's like a month turnaround, right? So if you're trying to hit a date, this could mess you up, really. If you're trying to get out before Christmas or something like that, these are real serious for if, you, it, if you don't get it by now, yeah. Exactly. But yeah, the rest of the team, the rest of the eight people, it would either be split between, all right, well, you're in charge of this level. So, you know, try to find all the nooks and crannies in this level, try to make sure all the goals are right. Or you're in charge of this character, make sure this character can get through the whole campaign, can play multiplayer, can earn their unlockables without anything going wrong. Okay. You know, that's how you'd normally split a game like that. Just assign people specific areas. Or if you wanted to be more general, you can say, all right, well, you're the sound guy. I want you to listen to the soundtrack. And because this is a teen rated game, make sure these are the radio edits and not the album edits of the game. Or make sure all these sound effects are actually playing at a correct enough volume to the point where, hey, don't trigger that sound effect. That'll blow people's eardrums out. You know? Yeah. We didn't have an error game with something like character customization. Hey, here's the unlockables. Make sure that your character looks fine with all this other stuff and nothing goes wrong. Yep. That's how you normally do it. That makes sense to me, man. So this is your first game. Mm -hmm. And how, how goes it, man? Do you guys hit your date? What was like the thing you're most proud of on that project? I think we might have had like one or two resubmissions or so. Okay. Which was fine because the PlayStation was in that same boat. We didn't get submitted and passed, I think, until a month or two later, maybe. Okay. Yeah, that's typical. It wasn't that bad. We usually slip a month or two. It's pretty oh, normal. Yeah. yeah. And, and consider at the time, the lead platform was PS2. So the main focus for everyone was, all right, we're a multi-platform game, but we need that PS2 version out. Get that first. <laughs> I forgot. That's how we... Yeah, we definitely break it down. These days... Seems like we got a handle on, on these consoles, right? And so, oh, yeah, they kind of go hand in hand, unless there's some exclusivity deal, right? Or some limited exclusivity deal. Where it's like, oh, oh you know, yeah. you have a secret level of DLC for Sony, so that's mm -hmm. coming out a month ahead. But back in the day, yeah, we would kind of draw the line to be like, there's more PlayStation 2s out there than there are Xboxes. Right. So therefore, we're going to put the majority of our resources on PlayStation 2. I have an affinity towards that game because A, not a lot of people know about it. B, not a lot of people liked it. But C, it's my first one. You know, it's the first one I can say that my name's not on there because I got in too late for that. But I did it. I did a game. Wait, you didn't get credited for it? There was a weird thing back in the day where, especially for QA, it was always, you're going to get your name in the game unless it's so close to submission. Like there okay. would be times where we would have people come in and they'd put a significant amount of work, but because they were only there for like the last month, yeah, no one knows that, you know, you can't get your name on there. Yeah, which, that's too close eh. to like the disc being printed and all that. Yeah, two right. months is kind of tight. So your first credited game here that I see is Mortal Kombat Deadly Alliance. Oh, yeah. MK Deadly Alliance on the GameCube. Ooh. Oh, man. That was absolutely fun. 
Not necessarily the platform, but it was fun. <laughs> yeah, man, because I mean, Mortal Kombat is there's so many games, but if I had to say what put Midway on the map, at least for the home console, was definitely Mortal Kombat, man. So that that's like oh, yeah. a prize franchise to be able to. Yeah, M- MK, Blitz, NBA Jam, like those were the, the holy grails where you can talk to a regular person on the street that's maybe a casual gamer, mm-hmm. and they might not know about the suffering. They've probably never heard of PsyOps. But Mortal Kombat, suddenly it's like, oh, everybody. Yeah, I remember that. I know about that. Everybody knows. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I did the GameCube version of Mortal Kombat Deadly Alliance, which gave me a newfound look on the GameCube controller. Because MK Deadly Alliance was one of those games that did not use the analog sticks. Was this the one where you had a weapon, where you had like a few different fight stances? Yes. And, and then you can whip out your weapon? Yep, that's okay, it. Okay, 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 okay. That's it. My roommate had it in college in Stony Brook. My roommate, Jose, and we would throw down, and I was always a Raiden-type dude. That was the one where you had two different fighting styles. You could mm-hmm. switch over, and the next one was a weapon style, right? Yep, which did an insane amount of damage. It's like super high offense. Oh, man, we found something in there, too, that they didn't tell us about till later, and I think they left it in. Not as a bug anymore, but it, it was that infamous, it's not a bug, it's a feature type thing they told us. <laughs> what do the people mean when they say that? That's very popular and prevalent in the industry. It depends. I mean, depending on what it is, it really is a feature. It's something they were like, well, we didn't intend to do that. Uh-huh. But that's kind of cool. Let's leave yeah. it in there. That should be fun, right? Gotcha. So in this instance, what was that? If I remember correctly, I believe the bug was you played as Sub-Zero. You got out his sword. One of his moves was that he would take the sword and just kind of plunge it, right? Like mm-hmm. basically a two-handed stab. Well, we had it to where the sword was left in the body. So you lost your sword? You lost the sword. Your sword was in the other person's body. Right? Would they like have continuous damage or bleed out? Oh, yeah. They were doing bleed damage, right? <laughs> and we're going, okay, no one else has this. This has to be a bug. You know, we start writing it up, it comes back to us, and like, and it was after a, for a couple of versions where they tried to fix it and they couldn't fix it. They're like, you know what? No, it's a feature. Okay, that helps explain it more. Where the fix is too hard or has insane repercussions where developers feel like, okay, guys, the opportunity cost of the trade-off, this is not that bad. Let's leave it right. in. This works. Or, you know, in, in some cases, it's too late. It's like, <sighs> look, we're about to submit this thing. Don't, don't tell us about this. This isn't that bad. It's fine, right? Could you get a, another sword out as Sub-Zero? No. Oh, no, okay. you lost it. It was In- over, but it was good. I think it was good for that match. So yeah. like if I played against you and I'm like, you know, it's final, you know, second round. Yeah. I, I don't have a win. I'm going to throw that sword in you. I just have to play keep away and you're just bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. <laughs> and you're eventually going to die. Wow. And he's the only one that has it, despite the fact everyone else has swords. Yeah. yeah no one yeah. can stab. Interesting. Would it carry over rounds as well? Or would it reset on, on the next round? Damn it, you're making me want to go back and try it again to find out. It was a good one. I have I have fond memories of that. Me and my roommate would throw down on that for hours back in the day, for sure. I think the only thing I hated about MK Deadly Alliance was specifically on GameCube, because, again, I you couldn't use the analog sticks, right? Now, if you remember the layout of the GameCube controller, you know, the analog stick is in the top position. It's got the offset sticks, right? Yeah. So you had to use the D-pad. The D-pad's tiny. Yeah, oh my god. It was a D-pad that was tiny about game boy advance size yeah and stiff and stiff totally oh man because we were the runt of the three platforms we were like all right you you want to prove that you're good come play on this controller <laughs> get your d-pad moves on this guy here 
That was an absolutely fun project. And it was the first time I had ever been on a game that had an NDA. Like we were specifically told like, congratulations, you are in the MK team. Whatever you do, we're going to give you the moves list. Do not publish this at all. Don't publish the fatalities list or anything like that. That's funny, man. That was the thing back in the day where it was like a rite of passage to learn the fatalities and things like that. And they're super precious. I love how quickly that thing spreads at an arcade or or among a scene before the internet, right? This is before the internet was, was a big thing. That's super special to be on a Mortal Kombat as your first official credit in the industry. It's technically my first credit. I believe even in the final game, they misspelled my last name. No, uh, come on. Yeah, no, it happened. I'm Brian Bumlau there. I'm like, <laughs> all right, whatever. I don't care. If I saw that and I knew you, I would have thought that was like a, a cool nickname you earned from like kicking a bunch of ass on the team. No, no, I, I sucked. <laughs> God, I was mostly dealing with Crypt stuff and everything. And oh, Crypt was, yeah. oh God, Crypt was fun in that game. So it had so many things to get. It was yeah. It's like it felt like never ended. Oh god, felt like never. It's it's worse now, but sure. Back then, it was like, oh, here's a grid. Here are all the coins you need to get. Have fun. Yeah. Make sure this video pops up in this spot. Make sure this pops up in this spot. Like. And from a development standpoint, it, it feels pretty cheap, right? Like you just have like a two-dimensional matrix, right? And you just fill in the slots and just reuse mm-hmm. assets and surprise by quantity, amount, or strength or something like that. But it mm-hmm. keeps you chasing, right? Keeps you going in there, playing. You're playing anyway. Might as well try to get everything. Oh, yeah. They got that down, Pat. Uh, I mean, we're still doing that on MK11, so. Yep, to this day. And the new movie came out. Wasn't that bad? I don't know if you caught it. I did. What'd you think? Like, I liked the fight scenes. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I love the fact they actually did introduce a Deadly Alliance character in there, Natara. Yeah. I know it's a Mortal Kombat movie, so it shouldn't be about the story. But yeah, that main character. I got I got no beef against the character. Right? Mm-hmm. I got no beef against the fact he's got family and the family was actually treated right. Like, was you didn't it wanna... cult or something? Yeah, yeah, like I didn't care too much about him either, man. I was just like, as soon I got super excited when I saw anybody but right. I saw Liu Kang, Kung Lao, Raiden, Sub Zero, Scorpion. Right? I thought I thought Scorpion was gonna be the main character. To be fair, I'm not gonna spoil it for anybody, but yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. But it was it was I I enjoyed it. Yeah, it wasn't. I'll put it this way: I did not regret watching it. Yep. I'm glad yeah. I watched it. Time well spent. I honor the memory of the the house that MK built. Talk to me about Unreal Championship 2, the Leandri conflict. Oh, that was a fun one. It was significant for a lot of reasons. For the company, it was significant because we were publishing an an Epic Games Mm -hmm. game. And it was their calling card at the time was Unreal. Oh, yeah. This was all they were making, really, man. It was like, oh, yeah. And it was, uh, you know, Land Frag Fest Deathmatch. Oh, yeah. And so. You know, we got word that we're getting Unreal Championship 2. I'm like, oh, hell yeah, that's awesome for the company. Oh, congratulations, you got promoted to a lead. Great, cool. What game am I leading? Unreal Championship. Damn, okay. So, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, crap, high-pressure situation. This is, like, the big one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're starting there, and we don't have the game. So we're starting there playing Unreal Championship to kind of get an idea for what it's like on the Xbox, because that's kind of the basis for Unreal Championship 2. We finally get the game. We learn, oh, it's a first-person shooter with third-person melee. Okay, let's go, right? And so it's initially, it's the standard thing of they're sending us build. We're installing it on the Xbox hard drives instead of burning discs. And we learn that the game has a significant campaign mode along with the multiplayer mode. Yeah, that's what I played it for was the campaign. 
Oh, yeah. It was a 20-person team, I believe. We had split the team. Like, we had one side that was pure single-player. Like, get through the campaign, get through the bot matches, and the other one was straight multiplayer. Play the multiplayer. You know, make sure that's solid. So to get thrown in for my first lead game on a big game with a big team, that was pretty wild. You had to manage 20 people? Roughly, yeah. I mean, I Jesus. had I had an assistant lead with me. Okay. Which I think it was the first time he was assistant leading too. So it was a bunch of newbies doing this. Learning on the job, man. What words of wisdom would you impart for anyone as their first time leading a team on, on something this massive, this big? I, I feel like 20 people is a lot even with an assistant. I would tell you something that would contradict itself. <laughs> it would be, don't panic. You'll be fine. But keep a little bit of panic in you. That way you're on your toes because something can and will go wrong. Okay. You know, like you're, you're managing so many people. That's a lot of different personalities. That means a lot. And not everyone's going to agree with the decisions that you're making. But try to keep the peace as much as possible. What types of decisions? Stuff like, oh, we're doing overtime. Oh. Uh. We need you on this overtime or... We need you on the multiplayer team because you're actually really good at this, even though you hate multiplayer, that type of deal. Damn. Do you have any tact, any strategies for imparting hard to impart information? Or you just treat it like a Band-Aid? I try to just tell them, look, this is the way, this is what it is. I have no control over this. <laughs> tell how that's it, it is. Just, I, you have to be blunt because mm. I, I think there are times where you can sugarcoat things and it's sometimes okay. Yeah. There are other times where you're just like, look, man, this is this is just bad. I hate it. You don't like it. Screw it. I got to tell you. Yep. Here it is. We're, yep. we're all going to deal with it. Have fun. I see that you actually worked on Mist as well. And so Mist is special in, in the family over here because this is the type of game that, that Catherine loves. She loves puzzles. She loves adventure. She plays the crap out of Sudoku currently these days, right? And I, and I get frustrated with these puzzles, man. I'm like, yo, there's no information. I think I might have a journal, if that, right? But I, I, <laughs> I get frustrated with that game, but she loves it, man. Mist was really special because it was a super, super under the radar project for us right mm -hmm. so keep in mind mist was already out yeah it's been out for a long long time yeah, on pc and mac i'm in between projects right yeah and so they're like hey you want to take care of a quick project i'm like yeah sure what are you giving me okay we're gonna give you mist mist what are we putting mist on psp oh huh? okay. okay mist psp sure you know so we get it. I'm the only person on the team. One QA for the project. One QA person on Mist. But it's not a long game, right? Mist is pretty short. So here's the thing. If you never had a walkthrough, yeah. the game can be long. Sure. If you have a walkthrough, then the game is fine. If you know the secret, the game is five minutes long. What? So it can't be a short game. So yeah, real quick, the secret, is, the secret, you're not supposed to know it until much later because you're supposed to get the clues for it. But if you already know the key to it, you can actually just go directly to the observatory, get the book, get get in the library, put the book down, put the code in, drop the elevator down. You're getting an ending. The end. Oh, damn. Yeah, it's it, it can be a short game. But again, if you didn't know that, oh, Lord, we're going to slog through all this and this, right? Yeah, and, so and, you, and you have to test all these little nooks and crannies. Sure. Oh, God. And so here's the crazy part. I forget the name of the development house that did this, but the development house that got the project for Mist was told they cannot change Mist. Like, it's fine. You don't change the structure of the game. But we're talking about this is the PSP. You should be able to do smooth movements in 3D. You are not doing that. You are still doing the old Mac version of screen, 
screen. Yes, screen, like screen. You know, like no smooth movement, so you have to click to the next screen. They didn't improve the resolution because they couldn't do that. And keep in mind, this is an old game, so it's now just a we've straight got this port. Then, like, just get it to fit. It is a straight up port, still four by three, no widescreen type deal. You are using your D-pad or your left analog stick as your mouse type mm-hmm. deal. It's very straightforward, to put it kindly. But yeah, we had missed. I worked on that, and I'm like, okay, cool. I got to put a classic in the back in my portfolio. That's great. Hell yeah, dude. That's that's OG cred right there. And then a year later, they come to me again. Like, hey, you worked on Mist, right? Like, yeah, I worked on Mist. You want to work on Mist again? Like, okay, what platform? Nintendo DS. Okay. And it's the same thing. The only thing that was in there was touch controls. <laughs> like, you can tap certain scenes. I'm like, okay, that's great. It's still the same game. All right. Mist it is. So I had to work on two copies of Mist for two portables. Brian, the little bit I know about you, man, I just, you know, it seems like you just have a really positive, like, attitude that you come at these things. Like, sure, man, I'll do it. Like, I, I got experience. I've done the other one. No problem. I'll do whatever needs to be done. I think the, the reason for that is because I've seen enough people just kind of get real negative about, oh, man, I don't get to work on what I want. I mm-hmm. have to be working on this or this game sucks. And honestly, I would take it all the way back to Gravity Games. I didn't care much for Gravity Games. I loved Extreme Sports. I didn't like that one in particular. But I figured, look, man, you're getting paid for this. It sucks. You don't have to go home and play this again. You didn't spend money to play this. Enjoy what you can because there are people that would kill to get in your position, even for a terrible game. you know. And so my, my thing is, all right, hand me whatever. I'll, I'll work with this because I got no choice. If I don't do this... Someone else will, and suddenly I'm going to get shuffled out, and I have no idea what I'm doing. So live with it. It'll be fine. I was at Midway 2007 when I got on Midway, and I came in at the tail end of Black Side Area 51. We had just put out, I think, the first Xbox Live demo, and then I was trying to wrap up the second one, and then we had, I don't know, like two, three months left to finish the whole game. It's one of those situations that if we had six more months, that game would have gone from like, you know whatever high 60s to a really solid game, right? But I think we were being rushed to get out at the holiday season. It was that time. But I will say this, right? To me, working on that game for that company seemed like the best time ever. I had the amazing teammates, seniors, veterans. You know, I had amazing creative direction and art direction. A lot of people that I admire and and love and, and, and learned a ton from. All that, though, there was one game that was coming that we would see at all the company reviews that looked freaking amazing with like destruction and action and shooting, right? It was like Max Payne times 10, and it was Stranglehold. (laughs) It was Stranglehold, bro. Oh, man. So I was like, the company is going to ride high on Stranglehold, and then that's going to buy Blacksite time to like finish up and everything. Tell me what it was like working on Stranglehold. It seems like it could have been a very unstable game. It's strange, right? Like, So I came in near the tail end, and I was doing TRCs. So mm. I was actually helping them do the TRCs for the PlayStation 3 version of the game. Yeah, a little background on that. The PS3 was a monster to develop for, especially on the tech that we were building these games on, on Unreal. Mm-hmm. It was working fine on 360, and importing it over to the PS3 with its crazy GPU memory architecture, things were just a pain and you, you were crashing and running out of memory left and right. But I mean, oh, yeah. God, yeah. So uh, before I get to the stranglehold, I'll take it back because this reminds me of an anecdote I heard when we were working on Unreal Tournament 3 on the PS3. 
Okay, that's right. That's right. So we got Unreal Tournament 3, and people remember that it was exclusive to PC and PS3 for a while before it hit 360, right? Yeah, which was surprising, right? Because they came out with Gears of War... Right, uh, Xbox exclusive, so then it was like, oh shit, you know, Epic's making PS3 games too. Interesting, right? Before that deal, we actually had a build of Unreal Tournament 3 running on a 360 before the PS3 version ever happened. Mm. The team was told to stop. Oh, we damn. Got, we got pulled into a conference room and we we're told, all right, Sony just paid for exclusivity for Unreal Tournament 3. You're concentrating on PS3 right it's crazy how sudden that can happen man oh god yeah this was on a friday <laughs> and so we were just still like oh i guess we stopped playing the xbox version so you know as part of that late we're you know getting getting deep in unreal tournament 3 we get flown out to epic this was again when it picked up halo right so you know we kept running into issues where it was you know you'd have a lot more pop-up on the ps3 version or the frame rate isn't that high and we we're like okay well We've seen you guys work miracles with the 360. What's happening? And they go, well, <laughs> we got the SDK from Sony. We got the technical manuals and everything. It's in Japanese. All of it. We have to translate this before we can even do anything on it. And keep in mind, this was Unreal Engine 3 that they're working with. This was the, the engine that pretty much would be the standout engine for the 360 PS3 era. So they almost had to rebuild this from scratch kind of taken what's essentially Google translations of a document to try to figure out what to do. Yeah, I didn't even know Google Translate was around back then, but I do remember, yeah, that Midway bet the farm, right? Like we bought, oh God, yeah. we bought a license to Unreal 3, and this was all our studios was building everything on Unreal 3. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. that's why we got the contract to publish Epic stuff. Mm. Because we were like, hey, we love this. Let's do business. Like, okay. okay. Um, you want the engine too? Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. So anyway, Anyway, with Stranglehold, I'm on the tail end doing TRCs, and it was essentially, yeah, just play. Uh, don't mind some of the graphical issues because, you know, it's it's expected, but just make sure this doesn't crash. And we had a ton of fun just because I was a big fan of Red Faction back in the day. And so that's all I kept thinking of was, oh, I'm in the Chicago Museum. It's a T-Rex. Let's blow that up. Oh, that's a wall. Let's blow that up. Let's blow that up, too. Let's blow that up. Let's blow everything up. And it, when I got there, it was actually holding pretty steady. It was good. We just had to make sure it was still solid, right? I didn't really hear too many crazy things about the development except for the usual, oh, it's just much easier in the 360 compared to the PS3. The PS3 needs a little bit more love, but they don't have the player base. But it's Sony. We got to do it. And this was definitely at a time where a lot of studios really wanted parity. Like, you couldn't afford to just be like, oh, we'll release on here first and release here later. Like, no. Yeah. You wanted both. It was interesting at the time. I feel like the 360 to this day was kind of their best console. And I felt like that was the closest the console wars had ever been, right? Like you had enough PS3s and 360s out there in the wild to merit like, hey, let's build for both equally as good. Like you got to do it for both and you have to release it at the same time or else you're going to catch hell from someone. But I think the only thing that people liked about devving for the PS3 version was at the time, they didn't have a trophy system. I forgot about oh, that. Yeah. I forgot about that, that they patched trophies in like way later in the life cycle. But like Xbox oh, always yeah. had achievements. Always. So the thing we had to do on the PS3 side was, okay, try to do the achievements. Make sure nothing pops. Make sure nothing crazy pops up because of it or, you know, no reference to achievements and things like that. Was that part of the TRC then? The PS3 trophies or Xbox achievements? Xbox achievements were part of the TRCs. Okay. You got to make sure that they all come up and you get the full thousand or 
whatever yes, points. Because so. yeah, it was a retail game, so it was a retail disc game. You needed 1,000 points. You had to make sure that every single one of them popped. Can't remember. I don't think they needed a unique image, but they definitely had to have unique names, and they definitely had to have an image. And even though it was on system level, you had to make sure your game popped it or else. Interesting, yeah. man. So, hey, yeah. shout out, shout out to Chivos and trophies. I was a huge achievement hunter back in the day, right? And I had a pretty good number. And then now, a couple of generations later, I'm, I'm not as prominent as I was with the Game Pass. You know, I'm, I got the itch back. Oh, you're, dude, you're speaking to the choir, man. I was <laughs> super obsessed in the 360 era. And then right around the Xbox One PS4 era, I kind of ducked out of consoles because I I liked the, the PC was much more alluring. Sure, of course. So now I'm kind of reaching a parity with both, but I'm still loving my PC more. The only reason I'm going back to both those consoles, it's like, oh, look at my friends list. You're at this level? shoot i don't want to compete i, I kind of want to compete so now I'm, <laughs> I'm getting that i'm kind of like you i'm getting that itch back i'm like okay let's start looking at the guides which one's an easy one to get oh i don't have that one all right let's go get this game you know it's funny i remember i think we had finished black site and we're working on i don't know if you knew about this but there was a project in development called criminal oh yeah i want to say that was still one of the games that we saw an early early demo of it and it was still under the inevitable label oh i think it was like late ps2 when we saw it damn. so they had this idea for a while man okay damn you know you actually reminded me too i remember Wheelman. Wheelman's coming to my mind too like just vin diesel carjacking oh yeah air jack i think it was called or something yep. like that man one of the best moves in gaming to this date oh so good yo bro this is where i wish i had more of a business mind to understand how these things happen i want to say it was like the 2008 housing bubble crisis you know a bunch of people lost money and i think this attributed to like midway's downfall but there's so many good games so much talent and technology that that place should still be going today man rest in peace i want to get to your high moon experience but i don't want to rush through this and uh, like i said at the beginning i want to hear anything any stories you have to share about the first game i shipped on black side area 51 so full disclosure like my time with the next generation consoles was not much because they they put me into trcs right now yeah. i would say my the most experienced game i had during that era was the ps3 version of unreal tournament 3 Okay. And so for me, it was, I forget what they were trying to put me on, but they were like, we don't have a project for you yet. Uh, so helped out on Stranglehold and I helped out on Blackside, right? Okay. So I was doing TRCs for Blackside and the TRCs on the PS3 version looked good. You know, nothing really wrong with it. So I didn't have a lot to report. That actually gave me time to play the game. Now, my personal connection with Blackside was that I had a friend of mine, and we, we used to do gaming sessions there, a uh, guy by the name of John Bell. He was just starting in the TRCs. He got sent over to Texas, right, to do the TRCs. And I, I'm, I'm guessing because he did such a damn good job, like, I couldn't find anything. It was more like he took care of it, right? So I'm playing the game, and he's like, hey, I was able to sneak us into the credits in the special thanks. I'm like, really? Because, you know, we're QA. We're, we're not that high up the totem pole where we can put in a request for credits it's like you either get in or you don't so he got special requests and i'm like okay that's cool and so i, I made it a point to go beat the game because that was the only way to see the credits i beat the game i started looking waited for the special thanks and he had it in there he had 
my name and a couple of other names in there and i think we were playing rock band at the time so we had this there's a stupid thing where we called our band cookie chip cookie chip i think that's foreshadowing to where you are today my friend it worked out but yeah he had it in there it was like you know four names in there like defenders of the cookie chip and we're like that's pretty cool man yeah okay i don't care how i feel about the rest of the game i like it for that reason alone I remember when we were wrapping it up, they sent out like an Excel sheet or something. And they were like, hey, you have probably a tweet length of characters that you can fit. Each Everybody gets a line, right? Yeah. I've worked on this thing for days, right? Like try to cram in as much shout outs as I could, right? This is my first game. You know, my family, I was super close with my cousins and brothers and homies. And everybody that I knew played games or would pick up Blacksite just because I was on it and it was my yeah. first game. That I ship copies to. I try to cram in initials, nicknames, <laughs> like like commas, or hyphens, as much as possible in this thing, man. That was really special. Not too many places kind of give you that freedom. It's cool that you also are in those credits, man. That we share that credit. That's awesome. Like, oh yeah, I love the connection of the industry. Right, I didn't meet you until Jeff connected us. We share Midway Blood mm-hmm. and we share credits on Black Sire Fifty One. That's pretty sweet. Yep, and that's why I always remember a lesson taught to me a while back in the industry. Whatever you do, don't burn bridges because, damn it, this place is small. You're going to run into somebody somehow, some way, whether you know it or not. And that person might be very essential in terms of getting you a job or making sure you don't get a job. It's true, man. There's a one or two degrees of separation more often than not for people that have been doing this for a while. And uh, yeah, we don't usually have to go too far when a resume pops up and, you know, to mm-hmm. find, hey, do you work? Do you know so-and-so? Do you know someone who knows someone that can vouch? And usually with me, right, it, it's a thumbs up or thumbs down, right? It's either like, oh, yeah, super awesome. Got to have that person or flat out like no comment. <laughs> you want to be nice about it because you don't want it to get back to you either that like, oh, yeah, that's that's the reason I didn't get this because he talked shit. Like, you don't want to be that guy. So Karma being what it is these days through the podcast or whatever, I'm I'm just trying to get as much people put on that if you want to be in this thing, you want to do thing. I'm trying to get as much people put on and do the thing. We need more people always. Oh, yeah. So you ride midway till the wheels fall off. Close. Pretty close. I would say I left around 07 and I think they finally kicked it in 08 or in 09. Right? Yep. In the meantime, I go over from midway to a small development house called TC Digital. They were responsible for a card game called Chaotic, which happened to have a digital component. So you bought the cards, you were able to put in the code, and you can play the card game online. Oh, oh. by the way, we have a TV show with four kids. I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Right. You know, it was it was very indie at the time before indie was the buzzword. So that worked out pretty well. And then that kind of fell apart after a couple of years. Went to Sony for about a year or two. Sony Online Entertainment worked on of all things, the PS3 port of Feeding Frenzy 2, before they stuck me into the tools division for a tool called Soemon, which was like their monitoring program, got off that to do another indie studio that was trying to do predictive sports. What's that? So you're watching a baseball game, right? Yeah. And you're on your phone, you're like, that's a strikeout. Oh, I'm right. Okay, I get these, these many points. Or, oh, you hit a home run or a single, stuff like that, right? That, that didn't work out, but then that transformed into an indie game called Forge, which was like a team-based multiplayer arena hack-and-slash type game. 
you know, that survived for about a year. That went under, went to Disney after that. Disney was fun. What Disney? So it was a place called Sandcastle Studios. They were bought by Disney. So it was a mobile division. That was my first taste of mobile games. Oh. Um, did a game called Enchanted Tales, which was a storybook type thing where you're taking all the characters from the various Disney princess fairy tales, you know, and you're recreating that on as a city builder type game which city builders are more like, oh, place this house here, place this here. You know, you're, you're creating the world the way you want it to. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that was about two years. Got let go of that, then went to High Moon. With all these projects, is that just like the natural production cycle, right? Like they ramp up and they ramp down as a game is wrapping up or they bring in people to get it out the door and then they ramp down. And Was it contract gigs? Was it full-time gigs? So mine was interesting because they were all full-time gigs. Okay, nice. Benefits and all that. So some of them were contracted full-time, like SOE was contracted full-time. It was hired through a temp agency there. But a lot of those cases, I either stayed until a better opportunity popped up, or I stayed and the company died. Or, you know, the company got downsized. Like Disney's case, for example, they were trying to get out of mobile. And so the first thing was shed the studios that weren't really producing the big, big hits. Yeah, we're unfortunately one of them. It was still fun. It was Disney, damn it. You know, can't complain about that. Did you get any perks? Oh, dude. The particular studio, it still had a startup mentality to it, right? Mm. So we got free meals every day. What? Monday through Friday. Like lunch? Lunch. lunch. Like catered lunch or like you catered can go? lunch. Damn. Catered lunch. Every day. Every day? Every day. Oh, that's worth the price of admission, man. Like I, I started there and that's all I would get because I wasn't full time. So I worked my ass off to get full time. And as soon as I got full time... Every benefit kicked in. It's like, all right, you are a Disney cast member. You can take yourself and three other people in your family 16 times a year to Disneyland or Disney World or all these other Disney parks, right? Damn, 16 times a year. Yeah. Wow. To the point where it's like, I don't want to go 16 times a year, but I can do it, man. You know, you get free parking at Disneyland. You can get 20% off your food, 30% off your goods. Could it work that you can like get a friend in but you had to be there or did could you... i had to be there all the time okay like i had to basically be their caretaker so it was more like oh you want to visit disneyland all right it's, i'm visiting disneyland too not just to get you in but i gotta go with you man you chaperoning yeah like oh you want that merch i have to buy it don't okay. give me the money i have to buy it give me the money later that type okay. of deal right okay. but it was like for all the discounts even if you weren't a disney fan you kind of became a disney fan because of it it, it like, consumes oh, you okay. Oh, God, I got air. Oh, my God. Got the mouse fever. We raided so much. Like, the only regret I had was when when we got the word that we were eventually getting let go. That's Mm. when I finally discovered their outlet store, Company D, which is like for employees only that that had stuff from Disneyland. Like, oh, it's not in season anymore or this has minor defects, but you get it for cheap. Damn. We, oh, boy, we spent so much there. (laughs) So bad. So bad. Like a fire sale. Oh, it was bad, dude. We filled up, like, I filled up my car twice trying to just get stuff it and just get all the merchandise I could. But anyway, anyway, um, High Moon. So after Disney get hired at High Moon, standard interview process, right? Except this time it's four people in the room. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they were still asking me the standard questions. Right? What year was like, this? This was 2017, I think. Late 2016 or 2017, yeah. So I imagine they're probably on like a Call of Duty or a Destiny. The studio was mostly helping out with Call of Duty. Yeah. But when I got there, they had started on Destiny 2. Nice. Specifically the Forsaken expansion pack. 
okay the first major expansion pack since destiny 2 release so i probably got my dates wrong but it, it's it's roughly around there and i got put on the destiny team right uh four person hiring committee one hour gauntlet kind of thing pretty much okay. one hour gauntlet type thing you know we'll contact you in a couple of weeks to let you know whether you got in or not what right? types of questions were they asking so funny enough it was the same thing as the <laughs> uh, as the midway interview like i think everyone has a template you know like okay what did you work on uh here's this situation how would you write this bug you got this new bug who would you assign this to who would you talk to about this important feature like oh shoot you found this real big game breaking bug who do you alert do you alert this person directly and so forth okay okay so it, it is a standard battery of questions no one's deviated from this for years now you know what to expect at all these interviews you have your vast experience to draw from right by this point you have like damn near 20 years of experience <laughs> so you can just kind of pick and choose oh, i feel like talking about this right now yeah pretty much and it, again it is stuff like what you w would have asked earlier like oh you know what's the most important bug you've had how have you saved the company you know have you made any mistakes that type of deal so yeah i get in there and it's i find out i'm not working on the game <laughs> i'm working on the tools for the game so essentially like the level builder actually mostly the level builder like all the tools 3ds max maya I, I go through a routine of making sure that they're working correctly with this new build that they made mm -hmm. so that as long as those work, the rest of the team can actually make stuff. That's interesting, man. Was Had you worked on tool side, editor side before? I kind of did with the Soimon program, but it didn't prepare me for how verbose testing all these tools from Bungie was. Could you speak to that? What are they looking for? I imagine reproducing a bug in game is very different from working a tool and, and all the mm -hmm. different steps you would do to do anything and then being able to reproduce that. When I got there, I actually didn't have to worry about creating a test plan for it. We already had a test plan. So they were already steps on how to do this. And after I got trained on how to use the basics of Maya and 3ds Max and a level tool they had called Bonobo and like a scripting tool and so forth, we just went through a giant checklist. And it was routine every day. Like, okay, make the build. No, like you get, you download the whole build. You download the build. Great, it's on your computer. Run the checklist. Here are these steps. It'll take you an hour to check to make sure that the Maya part is working. And they were very basic things like, okay, put the spawn point here, put the spawn point for the enemy there, put the weapon pickup here, make sure that you go here and you should see a change in the environment, make sure you don't fall off the ground, that type of deal, right? Mm -hmm. But it was super, super basic stuff you'd never see in the game. Sure. So like I'd be testing in a sandbox environment that no one ever gets to see. That looks terrible, but it works. Yeah, like you know? gray box, like metric marks and things like this. Pretty much, you know, all the Forsaken are in T-poses and things like that, you know? And their AI is terrible, but they work, so that's all I had to do. It was very routine. Test the same things every day, every build. You got a little freeform in terms of, oh, well, I'm not going to put it in this spot. I'm going to shift them over a mm -hmm. little bit here. Or, oh, this collision box, let's make it a little smaller this time. Let's make it a little bigger this time. But for the most part, like you stuck to the script. You just had to keep doing that. That's interesting, Brian, because it seems as though you got a taste of what it would have been like on the development side. Like if you were an artist or a designer or a scripter, how did you like that? Like, I'm curious. I thought it was interesting. One, I, I liked the fact it was very structured. Like I knew exactly what I had to do. It was very focused and I, I was definitely appreciative of that. And I say that because I guess 
being away from AAA development or even AA development of big console games for so long, going back to a Destiny and looking at the things they had to focus on and how much of it there was felt very daunting. So in a way, this was kind of me in my little bubble. This was my safe space, and I felt really good about being able to test the tools because it's not super exciting, but looking out at what they had to do for testing the rest of the game, it could have been worse. How big a typical player set? Is it five people, six people to get in a raid? And Oh, man. I think we were... Oh, no, we did have raids in there. So yeah, six people in a raid. But for the most part, your campaign was either one, two, or three players, right? Mm-hmm. So you had your small fire team. Yeah. And granted, Forsaken, with the Tangled Shore environment that it's in, it's not really huge, but anything can happen. Yeah. Anything, you know. You could get on your sparrow and, oh, no, now you're falling into the world. Or, hey, this <sighs> boss didn't pop up. Or this cutscene didn't pop up. This mission didn't pop. Or I'm in this area and no matter what I do, I die because I just take one step in there and instant death and I can't get revived or things like that. Kudos to Bungie and High Moon and everybody that helps with Destiny. Because, you know, I remember when it first came out compared to what it is today, right? It's vastly mm-hmm. different, man. And to their credit, they pulled off the console MMO. They got people in there hooked in, still playing to this day. And then their company has grown a ton on the backs of Destiny and people love it. Oh, yeah. And I mean, as for High Moon, I know that as soon as the Destiny thing was over, they went back to Call of Duty. (laughs) Um, Now, they're still helping out. As far as I know, they're still helping out with multiplayer maps for every version of Call of Duty. That's their deal. High Moon, you're working on the tool side. Destiny Forsaken comes out and now you find yourself on the completely opposite end of the spectrum on mobile on these live games as a service and I imagine it's a completely different world Brian oh god yeah what the heck is it like I feel like you had to you had to like relearn everything I imagine I don't know it was interesting because I had to relearn that the game is big but you don't worry about it here's what I mean over at Jam City, I'm working on Cookie Jam, but I am working with the development side of Cookie Jam. So we are not worried about the stuff that already came out. We are worried about all the new features that we're throwing into the game, right? So we have currently about 7,400 levels in this game. My God. Unlike a console game where, yes, you should play all these levels again because you never know when something happens. No, you don't play all these levels again. You automate it. You build a bot and you tell it, go play these levels and tell me if something's wrong. Wow. My thing is to now look at any new feature that's happening and make sure that is working correctly. And then, you know, if I got the time, go back and make sure it doesn't collide with any other features that we could still be running or any other features that we've hard-coded into the game. But that's really it. It is very forward and much faster paced because you think of console development, right? Mm -hmm. Back in the day, you had to go for a deadline for Blacksite. Like, all right, we've got three months. That's not a lot of time, but we got to make this work, right? Yeah. Well, over here, it's like, you got a month. That's standard time. (sighs) Go. Go. You know? And when you release, you're not releasing to say, all right, well, we need to release this in the Christmas season. We need to release this next month. And the minute you get the go sign from Apple and Google, like, yeah, you passed. Good. Hit the switch. We're on. Everything is immediate. So in that sense, it's much faster paced. It's a little bit high stakes because of it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, because it is for a different audience, you are still going to get verbal feedback, but it's from a different set of people. Yeah. 
I am not worried about getting a bunch of people going on Twitch to stream the game or getting on YouTube to either praise the game or the features or to bash the game and features. That doesn't happen because a lot of the audience we have are very, very casual oriented, you know. You can make it a hardcore game, but that's not our audience. Our audience is more of, I got some, I got five minutes to kill. Let's go play this game. And to be fair, we do have people that really are playing this game like a World of Warcraft, you know, where they're like, I'm on this a lot. You know, I'm waiting on that timer. I'm paying to kill the timer so I can play more stuff. But that's not the bulk of our audience. Okay. So it is very different. To recap it, it's we're fast, but our audience isn't going to try to kill us if we don't have a lot of stuff in. But we still need stuff because otherwise they really are hungry for it. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like a much nicer fan base, to be fair. It is, but it's with any game, right? Like, mm-hmm. don't read the comments. Don't go into customer <laughs> service, man. You're going you're gonna to see people complain about stuff that you didn't think of at all. Some of it's legit. Don't get me wrong. Some of it's like, oh, yeah, we should have thought about that. Other times you're like, uh, I don't know where they're coming from, man. Yeah. Um, all right, whatever. And, and I imagine also, man, with YouTube – it's very prevalent, right? Like people will catch bugs before you do and put it out there. Oh yeah. Oh man. I mean, you kind of have to feel all the guys in PC and console development or like even major, major non-casual mobile games, because we have the reach now for people to kind of broadcast their feelings on the game and broadcast issues with the game, which in one respect is great because now it means a bunch of people kind of covering, you know, kind of seeing things that we never thought of. Mm -hmm. Right. At the same time, you're always under scrutiny because you're getting criticism from people going like, man, I found this. Why can't you find this? You've been paid to find this. Right? Uh, well, it's your job. Do your job. Like, this is a big game, man. Yeah. A super big game. And our eyeballs have been on this for years. We're tired, man. We can't <laughs> see everything. And you, you need a fresh set of eyes sometimes to kind of point out the most obvious thing. You know? Is that is that how, – how does that happen on, on your team, right? Like how do you get fresh eyes – on a product because you guys have a lot of projects it's not just you know cookie jam or whatever right um for us i'd say in mobile development it helps that again we keep getting new features all the time Mm -hmm. so we have no time to really dwell on a certain feature for a very long time Mm -hmm. it's more of we know about it but i need to move on to this new thing i'm assigned to i need to move on to getting this new pet in the game or hey we're working with wheel of fortune on this i'm working on that part of the project oh i'm kind of done this was working pretty well and it's ahead of schedule let me devote some time to the stuff that we always do like the new levels and like the new themes or oh that person needs help let me jump into this feature Right. Mm-hmm. And it's aside from you getting assigned a certain thing, we tend to just kind of freeform between things. Like, especially if I know that my stuff is good, I'm going to freeform and kind of go over and like, hey, you need help with this? Nice. What are you working on? Or I'm stuck on something like, okay, I, something has to be wrong here. Can you take a look at this? You know, and check, I guess, is, is everything okay? I think that's the best way that in mobile development we deal with that stuff. Yeah. As we're talking, I can't help but to get this image of Liam Nielsen and Taken, right? That comes out mm-hmm. and be like, yo, I've got a very particular set of skills. I know how to break things and I'm going to break things <laughs> so that mm-hmm. the game could be better, right? So that players don't run into these issues. It was interesting the notes you made about bots and having bots test kind of the thing that have already been there and are pretty kind of solidified and haven't changed. 
who does the bot writing? Is that you guys? It's a combination of QA and a dev or two that would okay. write the stuff. Like uh, most of the devs are really the ones writing up the code and we're just executing it and seeing the results. If it's something that we like or, oh no, bot died after 20 levels. We got to restart it here. Bot died after 20 levels again, we got restarted here, and it's a different set of 20 levels. So we treat it like another game. We send the feedback going, hey, uh, this isn't working here. Okay, oh. let me fix this part. All right, that's working here. Um, and other times, we really just need the bot to look at it and go, hey, crashed at level 2745. Okay, let's run this again. It still crashed at level 2745. All right, what are the logs telling us? Mm-hmm. You know, We look at the logs, and we can kind of see exactly where it's stopping or why it's stopping. You've been doing this for a while, man. I feel like you... <laughs> You're an expert in your craft, right? They say something like 10,000 hours and you're an expert. I'm sure you passed that benchmark a long time ago. I'm curious, where do you see yourself five years from now? You've seen so many different aspects of games and development. Where do you see yourself? Where would you like to be? Production. And I say this because I know certain things about myself. I can't produce sound to save my life. I can't program a lick of code. I do not know how to draw. I cannot come up with a game concept, like original game concept. I can help you fine tune your concept. Mm -hmm. But if you ask me, hey, can you make an original game? I can tell you flat out, no, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what I'd want to do in a game. So the last frontier left is production. Yeah, brother. Which is, you know, just essentially like, you know, herding everyone together and like making sure everyone's doing things, right? Yeah. And, you know, kind of placating the higher ups and going, yeah, things are fine. Let me communicate all the stuff to them and then vice versa, right? Yeah. If I'm not in QA, I want to be in production. It's always interesting. You see all the different avenues for developers to move into. Some people gravitate towards art, animation, audio. Some people gravitate towards engineering and programming. Others gravitate towards design. And in my experience, it's very common to see the evolution into production and running a project and being that facilitator and and scheduler. Because it's very similar to a lot of the things you're, you're doing as you're managing projects bugs. Yeah. And this isn't to say that that's your only avenue. I mean, like we've had people in the company that were QA and went straight to level design. Others Mm -hmm. became artists. Others became product managers. You know, others went to other places, not just Jam City, and suddenly took on completely different roles. But for me personally, I know production's it because if I had the skills to do it, I'd probably pursue programming, but I can't do that. If I could draw, I probably would have applied straight to art and kind of used QA as a vehicle to get inside and talk to people in the art department. But for me, yeah, production's it. I see it, man. I see it. I want you to reach out to me when it happens, or I'll keep an eye out on your LinkedIn to see when <laughs> you when you make the shift into a producer role. If you're somehow thinking about QA, there is one thing that people in QA ask for, and that's please learn how to write. Oh, God, please learn how to write, because half of your job is writing, writing bugs, communicating all that, and people do not want to see a big Twitter, no punctuation ramble about things that go nowhere. Amen. I like that you're calling that out because, yes, it's not just about playing games. It is first and foremost about communication and strong, clear technical writing more than anything. Absolutely, bro. I'm glad you called that out. Yeah, because the last thing I'd want as as a QA person is to have a programmer come to me and like, what does this bug mean? And I look at it and it goes, start game, see bug. What the hell happened? How do (laughs) How'd you get here, man? What did you see? What's wrong? You know, like, I want to know. Like like I said, way back in the beginning, grandma's trying to look at this, man. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know what the hell the game is, but she can fix it. 
you need to tell her what to do. Yeah. Make it nice and clear and to the point where I don't have to sit here deciphering like do you mean two or two or two, you know? Yeah, it, sh- it should be a recipe, right? Like with clear images or video and clear, precise, exact numbers and percentage of reproduction and things like this, right? Like the worst ones I get are always like, yeah, you. it's like one in 10 shot that this happens. I'm like, God dang it, man. Yeah. Those <laughs> admittedly, like the as long as those are written well, those are cool. But they're also like, oh, damn, you're freaking good to get this. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if we can do this, but that's, that's pretty cool. You know, we oh, man, we we had a couple people at Midway and actually every place I've worked at that was always able to get that once I have a bug. Like, dude, I can get this 100 percent. Like, I can't do this, man. Shout out to you. You're fucking amazing at this. Yeah. And, you know, someone's going to get it. Someone's yep. now going to make a YouTube video on like, OK, here's the 20 steps to get this and you can get 100 percent because of this. Yeah, we, we run into that a lot. There was been a common thread of questioning QA's role in game development. And I, first and foremost, consider the department essential in everything we do, right? We have a shared mission to craft a polished, frictionless experience to get out there, right? We all kind of share the same goal of let's uncover every little imperfection so that we can fix it, right? Because a lot of these things go out into the wild simply because we never uncovered it, right? Like when we never ran into it. So we couldn't fix something we didn't know existed. And I am glad now that at least compared to years ago, like even when I started it, where the QA department is definitely getting more respect than it has from before. Because I think one of the laments I've always had about QA was that it was always treated as that position that you need to have this department. But if things go bad, they're the first ones you can kill. Not getting into the business decisions of that, but being able to do that and use them as kind of a saving grace for cutting costs and making sure things are okay, that can come to bite you in the ass. Absolutely. You got to treat them like a department, like you want the department to stay, you want the people to stay for quite a while, because otherwise you're going to spend half your time training people over and over again instead of getting them to actually fix the big game. Absolutely. It's a huge cost to have to retrain anybody. And going back to what you said, right, you're going to make an awesome producer. And this is a great talent and resource pool of people that have already kind of developed a rapport with your team and have skills that can help the development of the game instead of you having to go outside and hire and recruit and vet and interview and all that time that could have been spending instead grooming, growing, mentoring uh, the young talent in in Mm -hmm. your studio. Absolutely. Like I had never heard of an onboarding process like you went through at Midway with a two week ramp up on this game where you're establishing a lexicon and a vocabulary and then you get a final exam. I haven't seen I haven't heard of something like that. I'm going to poke around to see if we have something like that because that feels so good and vital. Right? I've just onboarded at EA completely virtually and, and they have a pretty good onboarding process, but it could definitely get better. And so I definitely want to pitch some ideas as a result of our conversation. Brian, you've been awesome. I wonder if you are ready to enter our lightning round. Let's do this. What is the last game you finished? I've been on this kick recently where I, I want to just play short games, you mm-hmm. know, like super, super short games. I'm going to go back on a default, even though I've played it multiple times. I'll go with Sayonara Wild Hearts. Quick game to finish, but man, it's going to take forever to unlock the secrets. What type of game is that? How would you classify it? It's a living album. 
it's a living pop album because a lot of it is somewhat automatic. Like, okay, I'm going to go down this slide. I'm going to collect these hearts. Oh, I'm doing a Star Fox type flying sequence or, wow. oh no, I'm doing an avoid them up now because I'm going through this maze that goes through automatically. But the levels last about as long as a typical song. So like three, four minutes, right? Mm. And because it uses the medium of a musical album to tell a story about you know, heartbreak and then getting back, dusting yourself off and going back out there to live again. It works very, very well. Okay. Like I am a huge fan of indie games, even though I never have the time to play all of them. I definitely prefer short games, but memorable ones. And that one stuck to me. What's the last book you read? Been a while, but I'm a big wrestling fan. So the death of WCW. Oh, I got to check that out, man. I've been watching a lot of these Dark Side of the Rings and a lot of Eric Bischoff talk. Oh, man. I got to check this oh, out. Man. I got to read oh, this. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, like I said, I, I picked that up because you know, I was actually a big dumb. I never had cable when I was a kid, right? Mm -hmm. If you lived in L.A., you didn't need cable, yeah. right? Yeah, so I, I missed out on the Attitude Era, NWO oh, Era, Monday Night Wars, right? Best but I would constantly hear about it, and to see a company – get real big and then just go poof i wanted to know man i wanted to know what the hell happened i'm surprised the money they were throwing at the talent right they were throwing huge contracts at talent and it's like oh well you had that yeah. much money to throw around how the heck did you flounder they got the ratings man that was it they just got complacent and the backstage politics killed everything and well is it a good read i'd say so okay awesome. i'd say so but but then again I'm, I'm, this is also coming from a more than casual wrestling fan that loves entertainment history yep. and this falls under entertainment history so I, i'll admit i'm a little biased but yeah i liked it i liked awesome. it quite a bit what's the thing you enjoy the most about the job I can be a little sadistic within reason the whole point of the job is to break things you are told most of your life, don't break things. Make sure you don't destroy things. You're getting paid to destroy things? Yeah. <laughs> I'm in. That's awesome. You actually point out something I've been looking for. I've seen it, but I haven't found one local. There's like these, you can pay to go into a room with a bat or what have you and just shatter it to debris. And I'd like to unleash some of that as a result of the last year. I wouldn't mind yeah, checking that out. It's cathartic. Mm -hmm. you know, why not? That's a good word. What's your favorite part about working from home? I can get up, immediately go to work, and when I'm done, I'm right here. I don't have to face traffic. Actually, that's the biggest thing. Don't face traffic. Don't have to face time deadlines. It's really just, all right, I'm here at work. Oh, I'm done. Okay, fine. Click over something else. All right, let me work on this, you know, stuff I want to do. That's a big one, man. A lot of time saved not dealing with traffic and commute times. That's a big one for a lot of people. What's the thing you miss most about being in the office? People. I'll use this situation as an example. You know, I'm used to talking to people on a screen now. That's cool. But I can't like reach out and not feel plastic. I want to be like, you know, I want to slap hands with people. I want to start pointing at people and laughing at a volume that I don't have to worry about. Oh, I'm on mute or things like that. Yeah. You know, having people around you, even if you're not really a social person, after a while you kind of realize you kind of need something and work. As long as you don't hate everybody there, it's that human interaction something. I want that back. Amen. I miss that as well. It sounds like a Black Mirror episode going to this world of where we can just mute ourselves or mute people. <laughs> it's great on one hand. On another hand, you're like, man, I kind of want that ability to catch myself. Yeah, totally. Do you watch Mythic Quest? I'm terrible when it comes to TV shows. 
I've heard about Mythic Quest. I've seen the trailers. I know what stars that one guy from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I have an Apple TV subscription, but that's because I bought an iPhone. I, I don't I don't use it. So I know about it. I know people have talked about it. I know people have said, go watch it. At this point, honestly, unless you're a Marvel TV show or unless you're Star Wars, man, I kind of like, eh, I'll, I'll get to it eventually. But I've been saying I'll get to it eventually for five years. So You've been an awesome guest. Uh, we have a little tradition around these parts. And it's if you had a fun time falling out of the play area, is there anyone you would nominate to fall out of play area behind you? Yes. There was a co-worker of mine and a really good friend of mine named Chris Evans. He and I started working at Midway on LA Rush. He came in very late into the project. You know, so another QA guy, right? But for me personally, and for the sake of the podcast, he has shuffled under so many different roles at so many different times of his life and at so many companies at times, you know, within the industry and even without getting out of the industry and coming back. He has been essential in terms of hooking me up with certain positions at certain companies. And so to hear from a guy that went from QA to like the front desk you know, kind of being the receptionist to going back into QA, doing production, doing temp work, going into customer service, you know, just pinballing everywhere. That's got to be a ridiculous story. Thank you for that, Rec. I look forward to reaching out to Chris Evans. And we're not talking about Captain America. We're talking about <laughs> another Chris Evans that has a pretty awesome game dev career. Yep. Hey, man, thank you so much for your time, taking the time out on a weekend, no less. Uh, this has been really fun going back into the midway archive reliving some tales in socal hearing about what you're up to again to meet you brian do you have any last words before we get out of here god just keep living stuff man just do what makes you happy as long as you don't hurt anybody don't don't do <laughs> yeah, just just do happy shit because we don't we got too much time to stop to start being sad man do your shit i like that great last words all right brother we out of here peace Later, man. Shout out to all of you quality assurance analysts, designers, testers, leads, directors. Thank you for what you do. If you listen to this, please send some love to the QA on your team. Book a one on one and let them know how they help make your product better. Game dev is hard. And at the end of the day, the team and feeling appreciated on that team go a long, long way when the time gets rough. In over 20 years, Brian has seen it all and survived making the transition from console and PC over to mobile. I love his go get it mindset where he doesn't make excuses and he sees the work that needs to be done and gets it done. Now he's leading a team and helping groom the next generation. Many people have entered through QA and gone on to jump into design, art, animation, audio, engineering, production, direction, even all the way up the ladder to CEO or founding their own studio. I look forward to bringing him back on when he makes the jump over to be a producer. He drops some knowledge on classics like Hydro Thunder, Mist, Mortal Kombat, Deadly Alliance, San Francisco Rush. This was a good one. Let me know how you liked it. On episode 20 of Out of Play Area, we feature a fellow Full Sail alumni, Bungie Boomerang and design director at Bungie, Ryan Parody. Ryan and I both graduated from Full Sail's Game Dev Bachelor's program way back in 2006, and we got to work together as designers on Red Dead Redemption 1, Undead Nightmare, and a bit of GTA 5 before he made the epic move up to Seattle 
where the rest has become pretty much history. We recorded this earlier in the pandemic when he was a director at 343 working on the highly anticipated Halo Infinite. And by nature of your boy still trying to work out my podcast production pipeline, we're just now shipping it. So a bunch has changed since then, but nevertheless, we'll get into all the things, leadership, design, game development, and what it means to be a great teammate. Stay tuned when that episode drops on Monday, October the 25th. Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer or on your social media to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top so we can meet up and have a conversation. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, Google. Please make sure to follow so you see what developer pushes out of the play area next time. Until then, I'm your host, John Diaz. See you next time. Stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Ran, bring them home. Flight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Captain crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out-of-play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out-of-play area podcast. Out-of-play, out-of-play area podcast. We got a little something for the game devs Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous Had to switch the styles for a challenge Best thing out of Harlem since Young Miles Morales A new podcast comes to provide the balance With game dev veterans and rising talents Out of play Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast A show by game devs for game devs With no ads, no BS, just the real